Hello and welcome to the latest episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. My name is Paul Hindle, editor of Fintech Futures, and today, somehow in the blink of an eye, we've come to the end of another year and another season of the podcast. So this will be the final episode of season four of What the Fintech, and we will of course be back in early 2024 with, you guessed it, season five of the show. So as it's now officially December and the holiday season, we're here recording our annual end of year review. So this is where we take a look back at some of the big stories and trends to come out of 2023 and what we're most excited about as we head into 2024. To help me cast an eye over the year that was, I'm joined by fellow podcaster, FinTech Futures columnist and all-round banking tech whiz, Damesh Mystery. Damesh, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm really excited to be doing this. Excellent. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I think it's your first time on the show as well, right? After Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a great honor. And to close out the year, what a fantastic privilege. Excellent. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for taking the time out to, to speak with me today. I mean, I mean, just to get things up, I mean, how's your 2023 been in general? All, all good so far this year? It's been eventful for sure. And I'm very pleased with 2023. I know it's been a little bit tough economically, et cetera, but there's been a lot of positives. And I ended the year with a really lovely run in Nepal. So I'm quite pleased with myself. Excellent, excellent. I, I think we could probably do a full podcast episode just on that trip on its own, but we'll skip into the, the, the financial stuff to, to start with today. I mean, maybe just to get started, then we'd like to give us a quick intro to yourself and what you've been up to at the moment before we try and might make sense of the last year. Yeah, sure. Obviously, I have this year sold uh, Ask Homey. Then I decided that I've done enough of startups myself. Having done three, I guess I wanted to help others build their companies. And so I now have a portfolio career, as the term is, when you are working for other companies on a part-time basis in an advisory role. So I've got a number of companies that I haven't invested in, but I'm like a non-exec director. And then I've got a you know small portfolio of startups that I have invested in and that I still help. Sounds great. And obviously good luck for, for 2024 then as we go into the rest of the new year. But yeah, I mean, Regular listeners will know that we usually start the show with our news and numbers section. So I thought it'd be worth starting off with some stats then just to lead us into to what I think has been the undisputed champion of, of trending topics over 2023. And what kind of year in review would it be if we didn't start with AI or more specifically generative AI? So just some stats then. I mean, global spending on, on artificial intelligence expected to reach 166 billion this year, rising to about 450 billion by 2027, according to a report by International Data Corp, with banking being one of the largest contributors to that. On an annual basis, generative AI could add between 200 billion and 340 billion in value for banks in terms of streamlining processes and boosting internal efficiencies. That's according to a report by McKinsey this year. And of course, according to our sister company, Omdia's IT Enterprise Insights 2024 survey, 93% of the banking industry have said that they are already looking to adopt AI in some form, which given that AI has been around for, for so long now, you would expect, I think, maybe you'd expect that number to be a little bit higher. It seems crazy to me, actually, that as we record this now, I mean, it's only been about a year since the, the launch of ChatGPT, which is widely credited as starting this year's AI craze. So coming to you, Damesh, I mean, what's your take on the, the AI popularity boom this year? I mean, I think the interesting question is, why, why did it take off this year? I mean, it's a technology that's been around since the 50s that all of the experts in the space will tell us, it's been around since the 50s, it's not a new thing. Well, why did it take off? Well, I think the analogy with this is very close to the internet. 
the internet itself was around since the 70s and the concepts of networked and distributed computing that underpins the inter- internet have been around since the 50s. So what made the internet popular and when did it happen? Well, some would argue that kind of happened in the dot-com in 97, from about 97 to about 2001, but that really wasn't the case. That really wasn't when mass adoption occurred. Mass adoption occurred with the smartphone, right? What drove the initial dot-com boom was the graphical browser. It made the internet usable. It made it usable and also open. It wasn't a walled garden anymore where somebody owned all the content and invested the content. Somebody like CompuServe was a popular platform at the time. So it became open and a bit more usable using browser. But you still needed a PC and you needed a phone line and a modem and pay for that data that you were sending up and down. So it wasn't accessible because at the time, PCs were about £1,000. Now, when we fast forward to about 2007, smartphones became much more powerful. Smartphones existed before 2007. But with the iPhone, we found their usability increased massively with a touchscreen. The quality of the screen was really good, really clear. It was usable. You could actually then surf the internet. Data was cheaper across mobile networks because... 4G had rolled out and 5G was on its way, et cetera. The processing power of the phone had increased massively. Memory had got cheaper after initial issues in China and places like that where they produced the chips, et cetera. So several things occurred that made smartphones much more powerful and usable and therefore were in the hands of most people. It was really about 2015 when we hit the tipping point when 50% 50% of most country, most developed countries' populations already had a smartphone. Today, we're in the 90% kind of range, which is quite shocking, really. So that happened. But what happened with, with AI is a number of events similar, right? We had the capability and the thinking since the 50s, but cloud came along and cloud compute technology has evolved massively. I mean, we've been talking about the cloud since the beginning of the internet, But really what's happened is the likes of Google and Amazon have commoditized the hardware platforms to make them much cheaper and much more scalable, et cetera. Things like chips and memory chips especially have got much cheaper. Storage has got increased massively. So all of these technologies made the cloud much more feasible, which gave the compute power that AI really needs because it's most effective with the most data. But the key thing that really fundamentally got us to 100 million users in a matter of weeks really was the fact that OpenAI was something that anybody could use. And what we've seen this year is that they made it also anything that somebody could develop on. You don't have to write a single line of code to create your own GPT. So this thing is analogous, I guess, almost to the smartphone, right? We have a smartphone event in AI that's made it far more accessible and therefore the adoption has been massive. Yeah, I mean, given obviously that that mass adoption as well, I mean, so with this now in, in a lot of people's hands, what do you think some of the key innovations then have been, particularly with generative AI and what's really caught your eye, I guess, amid all the hype this year? There are so many like influencers that have got these lists that have got hundreds of these things and they're all amazing. I guess the ones that really caught my eye are the things around like DALI for image manipulation, other platforms for video manipulation, 
right? And that's worked in both a positive and negative sense in that we started to see these video scams or fake videos coming along. But just its pure capability to kind of impose an image and generate a video from totally, if you want fictional characters, then it generates the characters that are really human-like. The other thing that I think is quite interesting is the combination of different AIs being orchestrated to get an end result. So you can generate ideas from an AI. You can generate the script for a video from an AI. And then you can use another AI to actually generate the actual video. And then you could generate, using a different AI, reviews on that video to be posted, et cetera. And then, you know, another AI to post it, et cetera, blah, 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 blah. So the whole chain value supply chain side of it is interesting for me as well. I think it would be remiss of me not to mention and to credit what Mike Kelly did with Bank GPT. I mean, just to knock that up over a weekend was amazing. And what it's given banks that were nowhere near categorizing transactions, were afraid of things like PFM tools that were prior to it, just given them easy access. So it just shows how quickly AI can commoditize, you know, an offering that you used to have to pay lots of money for. And I mean, on that front as well, I mean, obviously with how quickly that development has been happening then, I mean, what are the key challenges there when it comes to implementing AI and how can businesses keep up with that rate of change? You know, everyone thinks that you can just go on a chat GPT and then create a GPT for anything. Well, you kind of can, but the data sources that are necessary for the kind of thing that you want to resolve need to be available. So data sources like one of those key things. And I think one of the limitations that banks, especially given my focus, is that they only focus on bank data. If you combine, like we did with Ask Home, we combine like data about the home. And when you add that to finances, you, now you've got a better way of running your home. You could take the same thing with fitness data and say, well, like, what's the most optimal spend I can be to be the fittest I want to be? I mean, how great would that be? Because I know as a runner how much I spend on running gear, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's meant to be a cheap sport because it's a pair of trainers and, and it's short and a t-shirt, right? But it's not really when you really get into it. And there's a financial aspect to some of this stuff, which banks could assist with. So I think data source is one of the key factors. The other one, obviously, is like mediation of the output. When we think about generative AI, I'm not talking about general AI or AI that analyzes data, et cetera, as facts and figures. But I mean something that produces output or content, whether it's a video, some blogs, some articles, pictures, et cetera. If you release this stuff automatically, let's say FinTech Futures just scrapped me and you and any other editors and just said, let, let, let's just let the AI produce the articles, which you can do, then I'm not sure whether we'd still have the same level of readership. And, so, and therefore, mediation of the content is going to be a challenge and is a challenge, right? Which is why we don't see so much public-facing use of GPTs because we don't know what it's going to output necessarily. And we know that there are biases that can be picked up, et cetera, and hallucinations that can occur, et cetera. So all of these things need to be ironed out before it can go out to the mass public. But for internal usage, where we are, by limiting access to what's been generated, I think there's huge opportunities there now. And this is the place to get it right internally first before you go external with the stuff. Let's hope it takes them a bit longer to iron out those kinks and so we can keep our jobs for a bit longer. <laughs> <laughs> 
again, I mean, we could probably spend an entire episode talking on generative AI at the moment, and it's, it's maybe something we can tap into again at some point next year when I think the general consensus seems to be that um, we're, we're past that kind of phase of, of talking about it now and it's getting into kind of implementing some stuff in, in the financial services space. So it'd be interested to see what comes of that. But I mean, what's in your view are the, are the next steps then for AI and, and what does the near-term future kind of hold for the technology? Again, I'm going to draw a bit of an analogy because when at the beginning of the internet, when I was first putting banks online, people were saying the end of branches and 25 years later, we still have branches, right? I don't know whether they'll be here in the next 25 years. I sincerely doubt it that there will be very many at all. So maybe that's true over the next 40 years rather than what we predicted 25 years ago. But I think there's definitely going to be impact from AI and much faster. And on that basis, I think some of the things that we need to address now, and maybe we got a bit more time than Mo God, you know, Gordat from Scary Smart and ex-Google fame has predicted that we've only got two years. Literally, he was advising people not to have babies, wait two years, see what the world is like before you have children, which I think is pretty scary advice, right? I don't think it's going to be that bad, but we do need to work harder on the guardrails. Like we can't control this stuff. I think everyone acknowledges it cannot be controlled, but what we can do is start to build better guardrails and encourage better behavior because it's our content. This thing works off data that we generate. So if we allow poor publishing on the internet, then that is going to bias negatively AIs that work off it. So we have to put in some better guardrails about what gets published and what gets made available to these AIs. We have to make it safer. We have to think about the ethics of all of this stuff. I think self-driving cars was a good example of like some of the ethical challenges that we have, but it was only the tip of the iceberg. You know, if you've got the choice of running over an old woman or a young boy, what do you do? If that's your only choices, I mean, that's, that was the self-driving car problem, right? But we've got way more than that with AI. And these are things that need to be discussed and agreed upon now. This is like people's living philosophies that have to be kind of agreed upon, which we as a species have never had to do because we've had this open world where everyone has to can have their own beliefs. Yeah, it's, it's going to be an interesting kind of expansion, I guess, on this into, into 2024 for sure. So um, maybe we'll come back later on in, in 2024 to have a quick look at what's going on there. But moving on from AI now, I mean, what are some of the big innovations in, in banking and financial services that have really caught your eye over this year? Well, obviously, I'm going to talk about evolution of core banking. It's been a silent storm. I think there has been an evolution of core banking. If I look at really what's happened, we originally built core banking in mainframe technologies, which at the time had its limitations. And we saw that in Millennium because storage costs were expensive. Therefore, we had two-digit year fields which create the millennium issue. But those issues of storage and capacity, processing capability, scalability, were much more complex than just the year field. We stored little data, which meant that how well a product is described or configured was limited. What information we stored about transactions was limited. With new tech and everything that's gone with the cloud, et cetera, that's no longer the constraints anymore. We need to rethink banking. Now with more data, what can we do with banking? And that's being done now. I'm seeing examples of core banking solutions that have just said, look, core banking for the past is a bit like a steam engine. Like nobody wants a steam engine. Few people understand the difference between a petrol and electric car, but 
few people should have to worry about it. But we're really in that era of the electric car when it comes to core banking now, that even the modern cores that are developed on microservices to be cloud native, that is becoming the next legacy because what they've done typically as recreated core banking as it was, but using new technology. So yes, we can make it more scalable. We can make the deployments much more flexible, as in we don't have to deploy the monolith anymore. We've taken advantage of the cloud. That's what we've done so far in that next generation. But the new generation core banking is rethinking banking. Why is the ledger just about money? Couldn't it be about any asset, whether it's an investment, a crypto, fractional ownership of a property, da da da, da. It's reinventing banking. It's saying that actually other people want to embed banking into their products and their customer life cycles. So we don't need to provide them everything. Can they consume just bits of banking? Of course they can. That's embedded finance. So the new cores are kind of enabling these newer business models, whereas the, I think the cloud cores were really solving an internal problem, which was technology-based. So I think that's one area. The second thing that this has led to, the evolution of the core has led to like a, a core migration strategy, which is going to be music to the majority of banks globally, which is core modernization. It's saying, well, I don't need to rip and replace, you know, which is take out my core while the plane is still flying and put in a new one, which is not only about changing the technology, but also about reintegrating hundreds of systems that feed off the core. So that's not going to happen overnight. That's not an easy problem. Even if we do that, then what about migrating the data? That's a complex problem. So rip and replace is good for small banks with small product portfolios and, and client bases. We can migrate the data and it's doable. What about standing up a new core? Well, you know, when you stand up a new core, you can do that in two ways. You can run it in parallel to your existing and migrate slowly. And that is a viable option, but it will take time and it will double your cost because you know you're running two cores. The other option is to launch a speedboat. And we've seen some brands being created by banks to kind of be that speedboat, like Pepper at Bank Lumi. But we've seen that as not being, again, it's a long-term strategy with two cores running. So what are the other options? Well, I guess the other option is modernization, which is saying, look, keep your existing core, but minimize its use. Don't make it do everything. Find the key problem areas. Is it about defining products? Well, okay, a core is actually made up of ledgers, right? So typically it does the accounts. What is a loan? It's an account that's gone in overdraft by an, an agreed limit with some credit scoring behind it. But it, essentially the ledger is still the transactions and it still calculates balance and interest payment. But all of that product behavior happens outside of the core. So can we put product behavior and product definition outside the core? Yes, we can. That's one way to minimize what the core does. Some of the cores are doing much more extensive stuff like credit risk management or fraud detection or AML. All of these functions can be third-party components. So this terminology, which you know, we should group credit to Thought Machine because they came out with it, hollowing out the core is a good way of thinking about how core modernization can occur. And as I've written before, I'm seeing examples both from a business functional perspective, take out the product management, take out KYC, take out credit risk, et cetera. 
but also from a technical perspective. For example, most of these legacy systems were built in an era where the users were always going to be on a network connected to the system. So whether it's a mainframe or a client-server-based system, they were limited by the number of staff that we had. Then along came the internet, and we wanted to open up these systems to cater for thousands of users. You know, how do you scale something that was designed for hundreds of users to millions of users? Well, um, there are technologies like diffusion data, which acts as a caching layer of data, which limits the number of times that data is accessed directly from the core and then uh, by caching it, you know, at a layer outside of the core. So there are other strategies for solving this problem. And, and modernization is a good terminology. I think it's going to be an ongoing trend. It's going to be the preferred mechanism for addressing core issues. The third one that I would say in terms of watch this space is wallets. There's been a silent storm. If you're not involved in wallets, right, I think you should be. It's going to be a bit like the Gen AI. Once people understand, once they become more multi-purpose, at the moment, they tend to be about payments. That's it. But once they become your identity, once they become your proof of ownership of your car, your house, etc., once they have much more purpose, then I think you'll see the real storm. And there already is a storm in terms of who wants to be the wallet owner or the wallet provider, because... Now you're going to have a massively rich set of data, far more than banks have, far more than other providers like social media players have potentially. So I think wallets is, a, is definitely a space to watch. I think sometimes people really associate it just with crypto, but it's not about crypto and it's not just about Apple Pay. It's more than all of those things. Excellent. Yeah, and no, I just sound really interesting and like you say, I mean, on the the core banking front. I mean, I've been editing your column now for the last couple of years, so I, I feel like I'm, I'm quite clued up in this now. But it's, it just seemed like a really interesting time, really, with the, the composability. I know you've been speaking a lot about as well, and that being able to chop and change and, and swap things in and out to, to really benefit things there. Again, I feel like there's a whole podcast episode we can do on this again, so maybe we can tap into that a little bit more next year. But for, for anyone listening who hasn't um, read Darmesh's uh, column on, on the FinTech Futures website, I'm just saying, I would very much recommend it if you want to be finding out more about uh, the core banking at the moment and keeping up to date with the news that's going on there. So we will touch on that again next year. But to move us on to some other topics, as it's been quite a busy year and a lot has happened. One of the prevailing talking points over the year has been obviously the difficult economic climate as well, both for businesses and individuals, compounded by that high inflation, high interest rates, subsequently leading to cost of living crises and a tough environment for businesses to operate in. So again, to start off here, I mean, again, looking back over the events of this year, it seems strange to think that the, the UBS Credit Suisse takeover happened only nine months ago now. Obviously, this year we've had the, the SVB and First Republic, uh, First Republic Bank collapses as well. So, I mean, looking back over all of that, I mean, what's your take on the, the current health then of the financial services industry at the moment on the, on the whole and have things recovered since those early shockwaves? I think so. I mean, uh, on the whole, the sector has proved resilient. This was uh, an issue with the investment strategy of SVB. They foresaw a world where low interest rates were going to persist, and, and that didn't occur. So that was what caused a problem for them. It wasn't the same issues elsewhere. But what it did highlight, I mean, I think it exaggerated a problem that was already due. And I've been forecasting way too long, and as you know with forecasts, 
as long as you keep moving them forward, then you're always going to be right about predicting the future, right? But I've been saying for quite some time that fintechs have to reach profitability before their funding dries up. And probably around about the same time as SVP or SBB as a funder for a lot of these fintechs highlighted the issue that most of these companies have not reached profitability despite their several rounds of funding, right? And But that's natural. If we take out the tech part of it, any startup business, typically 80% fail in the first three years. That's just the norm. That's what we used to, whether it's a guy opening up a shop or somebody else doing an online retail store, whatever it is, startups fail 80% of the time. So we haven't really seen a big fallout. We won't see one in the fintech space because unlike the dot-com bubble, which was a lack of, I guess, people believing in e-commerce as a general strategy, right? It was a failing of the promises of the internet scaling because as I said, still at the time, you had to buy a thousand pound computer to access the internet or hope that your workplace would let you have access. And not everyone had access. Not everyone was using it. And then, you know, because you had to go to a PC, you're using it a few times a day. So when the smartphone totally changed all of that, right? And the internet became usable at that point, right? But the bubble burst when people started to realize that the reach and accessibility problem was going to take some time. We don't have that with fintech because it's not one technology. It's not dependent just on the smartphone, which is already here. It's not dependent on generative AI. It's not dependent on any other technology, composability, microservices, cloud, da, 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 right? It's a mix of these technologies, most of which are quite mature. So it's now much more about the business problem itself and how well they can reach and scale. And that, that's just business as usual stuff. That's what any startup has to deal with. And if the models, the danger is what we see in these things is that a trend occurs like fintech and Gen I, we're seeing it again, is that uh, VCs and funders think, oh, this is going to be a huge thing. You know, you said the numbers, 450 billion in Gen AI. We want some of that. Find the coolest companies. Let's invest in them. Let's get in there early. Let's fund them. And when they scale, we'll be rich. That's not going to happen for 80% of these companies. They need a good business model. And in the race to capture somebody, and sometimes we invest in companies that we just think, oh, somebody else invested in that one. This looks fairly similar. Let's back a second horse. Let's give them a faster run at this, you know, make their business strategy stronger, et cetera. So that's just a natural cause of business. And we haven't seen that fallout, but we have seen our post-SVP, a number of fintechs failing to get their round of funding because it's now year four or five, the top up from their initial investors has run out and, and now they're struggling to get growth funding, which is only available to those people that are showing serious growth or profitability. So I think, the impact is to the fintech market, not to the banks. Excellent. Yeah, I mean, on, on that front, I mean, funding is usually a, an area we like to look at uh, at the end of the year as well. And uh, again, I've got some stats here, but Innovate Finance in their H1 review for this year indicated the first half saw uh, 27.3 billion funding being injected uh, into the industry globally, over 1,714 capital investment deals. This was a decline of 14% compared to uh, the 31.7 billion over 2,500 deals that we saw at the end of 2022. So suggesting that 
investment activity still stuck in a bit of a rut. And they've suggested that this is largely down to recessionary trends, such as inflation, obviously global conflict that's going on at the moment. But on that, I mean, the UK is still receiving more investment in fintech than all of the rest of the Europe combined as well. I mean, looking at the UK, uh, the UK fintech scene in general at the moment, I mean, do you think that's flourishing at the moment or is the decline in overall funding starting to take its toll there? No, no, I think it is starting to come back. I think there's a bit more optimism in where the economy is heading and in which case, you know, funding is coming back. But at the same time, you're considering like investors. For myself, I pulled out of investing because actually, do I take a gamble? And yes, I could double my money or triple my money, et cetera. Or do I just go the safe bet? Now interest rates are quite high. I can get 5% and, and know that I'm going to keep my capital, right? So I think there are safer options out there that have also exaggerated the problem. Higher interest rates gave people a safe haven for their cash. So some of the funding got pulled out, maybe. I think in the second half of this year, we've seen funding starting to increase again. A lot of the seed capital has shifted from fintech to generative AR. That's just a new trend. But there are still outside of, and that's really in the UK has been the case. If I look at fintech funding in India, then that's still growing strongly, right? And, and that market is still maturing. It's not really caught up with the UK yet in terms of its offerings. I also think there'll be fresh batches of new investment as people start to realize there are better models for fintech. We've been through fintech 1.0, monoline type products that try to capture market share, few winners in that space. But we'll see more complex offering involving customer journeys, end-to-end, and more multi-line products rather than, you know, like super apps are starting to take off in places. Again, fewer winners in the super app space, I think. I mean, just quickly going back to the interest rates and, and customers, I mean, obviously you've floated it there. I mean, at the moment, as we're speaking now, I think the Bank of England are going to be putting out a statement saying that they're going to hold interest rates at the, the level that they're at. at the moment. It seems that the consensus is that next year we might start seeing some uh, decline on, on that front there. So, I mean, looking at the customer front, I mean, the, the FCA um, had to have a meeting with high street banks this year, urging them to accelerate passing on these rates down to, to, to savers. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, have banks done enough this year to, to help customers in need, do you think? No, I mean, partly because they can't sometimes. If you look at who changed their rates earliest, it was Monzo and Starlink. They're on a modern core banking system. Do you think that the bigger banks don't want savers and access to you know fresh capital? Of course they do, right? Do they want to offer higher rates? Yes, they do, because it'll fund their lending. But they couldn't because... Sometimes, even the simplest of changes, when you've got a monolithic application, it's not that you're deploying this one-line change or this one parameter. It's because that parameter is used in a large piece of software that you have to retest everything. And just the deployment of this large piece of software, even though the change is tiny, means that it takes months. So their speed of being, the speed of their reaction is limited by their core banking system in a lot of cases. Not always the case, but in a lot of cases, that's what's limiting them. And we've seen that this year is that the newer players are the fastest to react. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, 
Moving forward, I mean, how optimistic are you in terms of looking at the, the economy, looking at interest rates, looking at the, the funding environment? How optimistic do you kind of feel about going into 2024? Do you think things are looking up going into the new year or do you think there's still going to be a bit of a bleak period before things start to, to improve? I'm going to leverage the benefit of some hindsight. You know, the last time we hit, you know, it, high interest rates and, and but interest rates when I was getting my first mortgage, we're hitting 14%. We haven't seen that. And that really caused a problem. But what we did see was even when they left, I mean, they leveled down to about 5 6% fairly quickly. But the movement from 5 6% downwards towards near zero took a lot longer, a lot, lot longer. We're talking well over a decade. And I think the same thing is true. Now, one thing that's I find interesting also is I had the privilege of meeting Sir Brian Pittman, who used to be uh, chairman of Lloyds Bank around about the time when I was working there. And in fact, it was when I was working, I met him at one of these like uh, dinners that they have for, for staff, etc. And one of the things he said to me, which I still resonate, I mean, he said a few things, which are super, super smart and so relevant for today. But one of the things he shared was that banking can only operate at 3% plus can only really be profitable in a good way that can help customers and grow and innovate, et cetera, when rates are 3% plus. And if you look at what happened during the low interest rate period, they lacked innovation, they lacked growth, everything was stale, they weren't making profits, et cetera. We watched the bounce back. Now that rates are raised, you watch the bounce back in profitability of banks. When they make profits, like... Yes, we don't like the big bonuses. That needs to be capped for sure, I think, is my personal opinion. But what, when they make profits, they can invest to grow and modernize and do better for customers. I think it's a good thing. And I think for sure, when we see the banking season next, next year, report on this year's numbers, we're going to see profitability throughout having grown quite considerably. It's what they do with that money now that is important. So I think the banks... There's definitely been, it's, it's a plus point for consumers, unfortunately. It just depends. Now, whether you're a borrower or whether you're a renter, if you own your property outright, then, you know, whoopie do. If you're retired and you don't have a mortgage, et cetera, then you're okay. But those with mortgages, unfortunately, I think we're not going to see the drop, the rates drop too quickly. Some people have been protected by early taking out fixed rate deals for five years. So they might write out quite a lot of the, you know, the expensive period. But for, I, I feel sorry mostly for renters because mortgages, are, from a landlord perspective, two things have happened. The government has removed any interest rate in a relief, as in a cost for running a rental, you could claim back the interest, which you can't do anymore. So it's become more expensive. Landlords get shaken out. Second thing is obviously with these rates increasing their mortgages, if they have them, have got more expensive. So rents have gone up and there's nothing that renters can do about it. The rents in London especially are crazy when I look at it, but it's pushing up prices, which is sad for people that are, are really trying to you know, save up and buy their own place. So I think there's a bit more pain. I think the majority of people will be okay, but it's always the minority. There are almost 250,000 people that start on a negative balance every month because they don't earn enough to pay the bills. 
And I don't mean having a fancy TV and going to Pizza Hut, et cetera, you know, for dinner, et cetera. I mean, people that are really trying to manage their money, but just don't have enough income. 250,000, it's a minority in the population, right? Then there are, you know, just the low earners. Again, their costs have gone up. I worry because that rates were quick to go up, but prices will be very slow to come down. And I don't just mean your mortgage, but if you look at shopping and petrol, petrol's gone up by more than 50% from where it was. Gas and utilities, because of the war in Ukraine, have gone up more than 100%. If you look at shopping, things you buy in the shop, some things have literally doubled in price. That's not 10% inflation. That's 50% plus inflation. That hits people hard. You know, so the cost of the shopping basket has gone up way more than inflation suggests. And, and I think those people that were on the breadline have been dipped under very badly. And I think that's the people I worry about the most because this thing isn't going to resolve itself in a short time frame. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's not great. But like you said, I mean, hopefully we can start to see some improvement soon as we move forward over the next few years. But um, very conscious of time, I've got a few topics uh, written down here so maybe we can just touch briefly on these before I let you go but cryptocurrency has been an interesting one again this year of course we had the high profile collapse of um, FTX um, earlier in the year more recently Binance reaching their settlement with the, the US Department of Justice I mean it seems in general crypto has been quite resilient this year given everything the industry has been through I mean what would you say the future holds there in terms of, of its growth and its wider adoption in financial services? Well, maybe I'm more positive than most of the US government is. I mean, it's not going to go away. Let's put it that way. It's not going to go away. It definitely serves a purpose. Whether it serves a purpose in financial services, that may be up for debate. I think a bit like generative AI, it's not something that we can stop because it's a distributed technology. It's not something that you can just simply clamp down on easily. And it serves a wider purpose than just as an individual kind of digital asset of its own class. For me, I would say that crypto has a long-term future. You know, if we think about just gaming alone, digital assets and gaming, yeah, I mean, that's a huge industry. That's not going to shift, uh, you know, sterling and et cetera. It's going to have its own wooden dollars in there, you know, in whatever shape and form. That's going to carry on growing. But beyond that, I think the crypto model offers quite a lot that financial services can benefit from and consumers therefore. Excellent. And just to wrap things up here, then I know you've mentioned a couple of things over the course of the episode, but looking ahead to 2024, uh, what trends are you most excited about and what innovations do you think will pick up the most traction or, or make the biggest step forward? I think I'm going to go back to my knitting, right, which is core banking. And I'm going to say that we're going to see an increase in banks modernizing their course, not necessarily replacing. I think we're going to see a clearer definition of the next gen core whatever you want to call it, whether it's composable or coreless banking. I like that terminology, came out from Bayan. I'm a big fan of what Bayan is trying to do architecturally to enable a composable or coreless bank, you know, so that we can live this vision that we've had for some time. We wanted a bank to be made of Lego bricks so that we can rearrange it, create new innovations, solve problems faster, et cetera, et cetera, right? All of this is possible in the next-gen core, which isn't just about cloud.
thank you so much again for, for joining me for, for this um, end of season podcast episode, Darmesh. Regular listeners, again, will know that we usually finish our episodes off with our fintech gel segment. So this is where we ask for an industry term, buzzword or trend that our guests have seen or heard enough of and cast it away into our own financial folsom. But as we've now reached the end of season four, it has been pointed out over the course of this season that Jen is getting quite full of inmates now. So as we're fast approaching the holidays in the spirit of the season, we thought it'd be good to have a holiday amnesty and break some words out of the jail as well. So Darmesh, I mean, which word would you like to, to be breaking out of, of the jail then today? Out of jail, I'm going to take crypto out. You know, we didn't cover it today, but I'm confident that we'll see a Bitcoin ETF, which will be a good thing for the crypto market. It will bring in institutional investors and more safeguards, I think, that will require financial services not to ban crypto, but to adopt it safely. That's what we want, right? Excellent. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny as well. I mean, crypto was actually released during our last end of year amnesty as well, but then was jailed again this year with the argument being that the words has almost become quite tarnished now because of all the negative press that it's been getting. And that bad press is actually impacting potentially some of the good innovation that's happening in the space. But is that something that you'd agree with or, or potentially challenge? No, I, I disagree. I mean, look, banks have been robbed for decades, hundreds of years, right? So, you know, we don't say ban banking or, or the term banking, right? Uh, and yes, FTX happened. So it happens in banks. It happened in crypto. That's why I say we need more regulations. We need people to help with the safeguards around this stuff. We don't need to stop the thing itself. So, no, I, I completely agree with that. I'm more than happy to break crypto out of the, of the jail again, and we'll see over 2024 what, what happens in the space again. But as it's a end of season podcast, again, I'll also break another word out of the jail as well, just to, to free up a bit of space in there. So I was going to break out funding, which I think was put in the jail back in season two. We touched on this one earlier. I mean, I don't want to overstate the power that the, the fintech jail has. Um, but as I mentioned, this word was added back into the jail back in season two just so happens that also coincided with the downturn in funding that we've seen over the last couple of years. So that could have just been a strong prediction, but it, it could also be that maybe the, the fintech jail has more power than before. So I hope maybe by freeing funding, then we might start to see a bit more funding flowing into the space, not just startups, but also scale-ups as well. So I think after two years now, maybe it's time to break that out and maybe hopefully that will give us some some good uh, good energy going into 2024 to see some more funding in the space as well. Unless, of course, you have any ob objections to that, Damish. I assume given what you're doing at the moment, you've uh, probably positive about more funding flowing in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely need more funding flowing in. Are we adding one in? If you would like to, yeah. I, I think you've got a, a word, haven't you, that you'd like to add into the jail. So we can go two out and one in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I know this sound, may sound contradictory, but I want a better word for it, which is I said one of the other key trends was wallets. And I wholly believe that. But I think we need a better terminology because I think it has so many things associated to it which limit its possibilities. And to really get this thing going, I think we need to widen its scope by not a perceptual limitation as a wallet. So I like to put wallets in. Excellent. Well, we can drop wallets in there, like you say, and then we'll see uh, over the course of over the course of 2024 whether things change on that one and whether we come to the end of 2024 and someone's quite happy to break wallets back out. Yeah, I think that, uh, that still works in terms of, uh, like I say, we've got a net gain in terms of releasing from the jail there, two out, one in. Well, thank you again, Damesh. Like I say, so much for, for coming along and, and speaking with us today. It's been, a, it's been a real pleasure and I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah, oh, I absolutely enjoyed it. And thank you for inviting me and, and making your last guest of season four. 
So it's been really good fun. Thank you, Paul. Well, that is all we have time for this episode. Thanks, of course, to Damesh for joining me for this end of season special and to take a look back at 2023 as we approach the new year. As mentioned earlier, season five of the podcast will return in the new year and we're currently scheduling some more guests for late January, early February, so keep an eye out for those. As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at fintechfutures.com, on X at Fintech Futures and, of course, on LinkedIn. If you like this podcast and our other episodes, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service to get notified about future episodes. Thanks as well to Arama for editing this podcast. You can check them out at arama.tv. As always, thank you very much for your support. Wishing all of our listeners a very happy holidays and new year, and I hope you all enjoy a well-earned break. We'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech, but until then, goodbye. Goodbye.